0: Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast, I'm Adam. Today's case gets down and dirty with drug dealers in London. As you will know from the cases that I try to cover, I have a particular interest in people living on the fringes of society and I think that you'll be as fascinated as me by the details of this case. I hope so, in a way. I think what I struggle to comprehend sometimes is the the utter chaos of some of these lives, and the vicious violence which is never far away. A lifestyle choice, maybe for some, but certainly not for others. So different. When I look around my dull corporate office, where the main thing that can go wrong is someone criticises your deathly boring PowerPoint presentation or spreadsheet. I don't know. So depressingly sterile, but at least physically safe. But firstly, I would like to thank all my lovely supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters. That's Courtney Gleeson, Gareth Jones, Alex Stone, Martin Gilmore, Susan Ducasse and Peter Hopton. Thank you all so much for your continued support, which allows me to keep producing a weekly show. Okay, before we begin, let's set some context by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the time. That was the 15th of November, 2010. Number one in the UK was Rihanna with Only Girl in the World, keeping Take That off the top spot with The Flood. In the US, it was Firework by Katy Perry. (laughs) I'm not sure if I've told you before about the time that me and my daughter went to watch some film at the cinema. But by mistake, we turned up into the Katy Perry film. It was a good 20 minutes before we twigged that it wasn't just a promo, so the other 10 or so others in the cinema must have thought it very strange that we came in late and left early. But there we go. Kaysha topped the Australian charts with We Are Who We Are. Sure, decent tune, but it's no horses, is it? Mind you, then again, horses is more than a bit special. In the news at this time, Australian rock band Powderfinger performed their last concerts at the Brisbane River stage. German Red Bull driver Sebastian Vettel won the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at Yas Marina Circuit to claim his first World F1 driver's title by four points from Fernando Alonso. Hmm, I know some people who listen to this uh, who love Formula 1, but goodness gracious, it sends me to sleep. What do you think? Prince William announced his engagement this month to Kate Middleton. And New Zealand suffered its worst mining disaster since 1914, when the first of four explosions occurred at the Pike River mine. 29 people were killed. And in the UK, students were protesting in London and other cities about tuition fees. You know, I'm not quite sure why this was such big news. If students won't protest in the UK, well, who will? I seem to remember spending a lot of my time at university. At sit in protests. I wasn't even sure what most were about, but they usually had free beer and pizza, so it didn't really matter. Not like our friends, particularly in France, who really understand what effective protesting is all about. Today's story comes from northwest London, especially around Kilburn, a neighbourhood of London around four miles northwest of central London. Back when I lived in nearby Maida Vale, near Lord's Cricket Ground, Kilburn was quite an edgy place. Nowadays, it's a much more trendy environment, packed with restaurants and bars. But walk a couple of hundred metres, and there's a much tougher, grimier side to the area, with large estates and significant poverty. In these communities where many feel alienated from the obvious wealth all around them, crime can and does thrive especially the drugs trade. And in that environment, Feral Benjamin was a Class A drug dealer who went by the street names of Kingy or Blacks. He lived with his partner and two young children in Edgware, North London. And although his job brought in some decent cash, it almost goes without saying that it was a chaotic job and it involved huge risks. None more so than when as a dealer you are holding stock on your home And people know about it. They know you've got drugs, they know you've got money, and they know where you live. Robbery and violence is surely never a few moments away. I'm not sure about you, but I don't think I'd ever be able to relax properly. I'm writing this now on a Sunday morning with my dog Buckley, cuddled up to me on the couch. As I look at the trees blowing around in the garden, though it's not a poem, I sometimes think I can see something, or see someone but you just dismiss it, don't you? But in Feral Benjamin's line of work, a knock on the door, a figure from the trees, could occur at any time. On the afternoon of the 14th of November 2010, Tashika Campbell went to visit her cousin, Carline Wellington, at her home in Edgware. Carleen was Feral Benjamin's partner, but she wasn't home as she was out at work. But Feral Benjamin was there with their two young children. Tashika Campbell went into the house to speak to Ferrell and just minutes later there was a big disturbance, big noise at the front door as four men, all wearing masks and gloves, burst in through the front door. They took Tashika and the children upstairs and they tied Ferrell up with tape before searching the house. Ferrell wasn't naive, he knew exactly what was going on. These guys weren't messing around at all and they were looking for his drugs and his stash of money. His partner, Carline Wellington's 12-year-old son, arrived home shortly afterwards and was told by Tashika, go away, something bad is happening. And it was. The four masked men bundled Ferrell into the boot of his own car and drove him away. They also took his mobile phones and also Tashika's phone. When Carline heard what had happened, she was clearly terrified and she feared for her partner's safety. As she would, she repeatedly called his phone that evening and the next morning, but frustratingly, almost all went to voicemail, and then the phones were switched off. Then there was a phone call from Ferrell to Carlene. When she answered, the voice said, I owe someone money, but I'm all right. Meet me at the house in 20 minutes. She did not think it sounded like him, but her friend, who also listened to it, thought it was him, and then there was silence, and he wasn't at the house 20 minutes later. Carleen spent a dreadful night hardly sleeping, worried sick about what had happened to Ferrell. But it was 1pm the next day, when Ferrell's body was found, at a communal council-run hostel, just a few miles away in North London. After Colleen was told the task of identifying the body was a oh just a horrific one for her. As her partner had been beaten and tortured by his captors. Imagine that. Indeed, when he was found by police, it was clear that Ferrell had suffered terribly in his final moments. He'd been stripped almost naked, severely beaten, and tortured with boiling water before being left to die in the pool of his own blood in the toilets face down. In particular, his back was deeply scarred and there was blood spattered on the walls. It was like something out of a horror film. It really wasn't a pretty scene at all. His distinctive pendant and a fake Cartier watch were missing from his body and the formal post-mortem gave the cause of his death a severe head injuries. All those hopes and dreams for the future as he grew up and it ended like that, terrified on the door of a dingy toilet being tortured. Not something you would wish on your worst enemy, is it? The Harrow Times reported in the days after the murder how flowers, bottles of Guinness and cans of ginger ale were left outside with tributes to feral. The police were certain very early on that this was a drugs-related killing, probably by another rival drugs gang. And people talked to the police, they informed allowing them to quickly draw up a clear understanding of what had happened. It seemed that Ferrell's girlfriend's cousin, Tashika Campbell, who knocked on the door, was recruited by her boyfriend, Mustafa Ali, who was a rival drug dealer, to help stage the robbery. And so she had deliberately let the gang of four men into the house where Ferrell had been with his children. But imagine doing that, she must have known that he was going to be, if not killed, then beaten up pretty badly. Police discovered that the gang had taken Tashika Campbell and the children upstairs, tied up Feral Benjamin with tape and searched the house for his money and his drugs. The four masked and glove men then bundled him into the boot of his own car and drove him away, some in that car, others in another car they'd arrived in. They also took his mobile phone and Tashika Campbell's mobile, among other things. After they took him away, they repeatedly tortured him to try to make him tell them where his money and drugs were. And later that evening, they took him to a different address, 25 Burton Road, where he was to be murdered. And they were let in by a man called Samuel Prime Fearon, who lived there, allegedly. Feral Benjamin was kept there while two of their group went to his home with his keys and searched it again for his property but once more without success. And in the early hours of the morning of the 15th of November 2010, they killed him in a communal toilet, leaving him to die on the floor. Tashika's new husband fled the country after the attack. Ah, the course of true love huh? The other gang members identified were Craig Smith and Smith's longtime associate, Tex Crawford. While they were in custody, Ali never returned to face the music, and another suspected kidnapper was never identified. But the others faced trial before a jury. Craig Smith, aged 23, of No Fixed Abode, was jailed for life for the murder of Ferrell Benjamin. He was given 12 years in jail for conspiracy to rob, 8 years for kidnap, and 5 years for false imprisonment. Tex Crawford, aged 21, of Mitcham, Surrey, was jailed for life for the murder and given an extra 10 years in jail for conspiracy to rob, 8 years for kidnap and 5 years for false imprisonment. And Carleen Campbell's cousin, who'd given the men access to Ferrell, she was aged 22 and she was convicted of conspiracy to rob and jailed for 8 years. Samuel Prime Fearon, a 25-year-old from Wilsdon, North London, was originally charged with both the murder and false imprisonment of Feral Benjamin, but he was acquitted of both. In court, he claimed he was in his room listening to music at the time of the murder and denied letting the killers into the hostel. Well, he was found not guilty, so he must have been not guilty. After the trial finished, there were some very strange events in court. I have my thoughts on this, but would be interested in yours too. Even before the verdict was announced, one of the members of the jury tried to storm out of the courtroom as the jury foreman announced that they'd reached a majority decision. The male juror was ordered back to his seat by the judge Stephen Kramer QC, but by then the damage was done. After that, the judge ordered the public gallery, the dock and the jury box to be cleared. and As he did so, uproar broke out and another juror refused to return to court following the interruption. Craig Smith, who had just been convicted of murder, had something to say. Members of the jury were left in tears after Smith shouted across the courtroom, you haven't been listening to the evidence. Ten weeks you've been listening to it and you still come back with guilty verdicts. It doesn't make any sense. Interesting, isn't it? How that rant from a man who'd just been found guilty by the jury had such an effect on them. It certainly didn't influence the detectives involved in the case who were certain of their guilt. When the convicted people had been led to their cells, Detective Inspector Julian King, who was the officer in charge of the investigation, said, Feral Benjamin was subjected to the most violent torture before being left to die. He leaves behind a loving partner and two young children. These men and women had no regard for him in their desire to obtain his property at any cost. The Met Police will relentlessly pursue people of violence and bring them before court to face the consequences, no matter what part they paid. Ferrell's girlfriend, Carleen Wellington, said in a statement, Ferrell was the greatest, and there will never be another like him. He made such an impact on my life. Since his tragic and untimely death on the 14th of November 2010, my whole life, and the children's, has been torn apart. There's an empty vacuum that cannot be filled, and no words can explain just how I feel. Still waiting for an explanation. Nothing makes sense. How do you explain to your children that they will no longer be able to see their father to watch them grow, to play with them, to see them leave school? Do people really know the hurt the pain that this has caused, not just to me but to my children, and also to Feral's family and my own family and friends. Violence does not solve anything, it just leaves many people in sorrow. We must stop killing each other, and whilst it's too late for me, Feral was taken in the most tragic circumstances, don't let it happen to another person, and don't destroy another family. And although many of you will no doubt have little sympathy for Feral, you know, a Class A drug dealer, the misery he brought to people, but all the same, to die in their circumstances, and as we said before, the knock-on effects of this murder, it's still a tragic story, and so sad particularly for Carleen and her family. One of the aspects of this case which is so unusual is that the drugs dealer was actually murdered. It's likely that similar acts happen in all our major cities every day. The reason we don't hear about these cases is that it's so rare for the dealer to be murdered and when they are released they don't go to the police for obvious reasons. Indeed, as you probably know, there are gangs around who specialise purely in torturing drug dealers to get their drugs and money, or taxing as it's more widely known. Just a quick search reveals so many other incidents, all utterly terrifying. For example, let's just pick one. In 2016, 44-year-old Kenneth Murphy was ambushed by another drugs gang. He dealt in drugs himself. After driving in his car, he was suddenly blocked in by two cars, and within moments the driver's door was smashed, the door opened, and Kenneth was dragged out and hit over the head and punched numerous times. In court, his QC said he cannot identify or even describe his attackers, save to say that their faces were covered and made Liverpool accents. (laughs) Again, of course he didn't. The QC continued, he was dragged along the ground and thrown into the boot of his own car, which was driven away at high speed. And in this case, the gang responsible were only caught as they drove ridiculously fast and crashed. The QC continued. When the two officers got out of the police vehicle, they immediately realised that there was someone in the boot of the Audi. It was, of course, Kenneth Murphy, and he was in a terrible state. He was covered in blood from a deep cut to his forehead. He had two black eyes. The left eye and cheek being so swollen that the left eye was completely closed over. He was absolutely petrified and was pleading for help. The court heard that, Murphy himself was involved in drug dealing and admitting to wearing a two and a half thousand Raymond Vale watch at the time of the incident despite appearing to be in debt. The judge, talking to one of the gang that he gave a sizable jail sentence to for the assault, said Your case was advanced on your behalf with some force that Mr Murphy was himself a drug dealer, and this offence has all the hallmarks of a drug related violence, be it discouragement, enforcement, or so-called taxing. If the gang hadn't crashed a car, the story would have remained outside the jurisdiction of the courts. It wouldn't have been in the papers. But like so many similar cases, it's hard to reach a clear conclusion about what actually happened, as (laughs) the victims don't want to talk on the record. Understandably so, because of the seriousness of the potential ramifications for both them and their families. And so back to Fellow Benjamin's murder and the strange events in court. Look, I'm not here to discuss the limitations of the jury system. But let me ask you this. Would you have wanted to be a juror in this case if you lived anywhere near London? I know that I certainly wouldn't. I've heard of countless cases where jurors have felt threatened and intimidated. I've heard of numerous cases where jurors have felt threatened and intimidated Not necessarily the blatant intimidation, I mean, this is easy to report, isn't it? But going back to your car and seeing people hanging around or sitting around there, looking at you, just making the point of saying, we know who you are, and if we want to get you, we know where you live, and we'll find you. Some people suggest that many jurors now just want to get the process finished as soon as possible, so they can get back with their lives, and so want a quick decision. Or that some jurors feel bullied by stronger personalities in the room. But whatever the reasons for it, in this case there was clearly strong tensions among the jury. Does that mean they came to the wrong verdict? Well, who knows? We can't judge, I guess. The people responsible for Ferrell's murder are now either released or not too far away from being released. I wonder two things. Will they return to the kind of life they led before, or has prison changed them? And then what about Feral Benjamin's children? I wonder what their attitude would be to drugs. Will they get involved on the streets, or will the utterly horrendous murder of their father turn them away from that way of life forever? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. If you'd like to discuss this story, or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to our Facebook group, where we have almost 1,700 members now. You'll be very welcome. Or if you'd like to support the show on Patreon, and enjoy the 21, soon to be 22, full-length bonus episodes, please just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. What is the not to like, huh? Actually, on reflection, probably best not to go there. So that's all from me for this week. So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio from me. And remember, despite the intense provocation from those people all around you, stay classy.